Jews, but he, uh, other Jews said, you're just making the biggest idol ever. You made nature into an idol. And he was uh, eventually excommunicated from the, the community. Um, and he was one of the few people to sort of leave the Jewish community in Europe at that point in time without then joining uh, the Christian community. He remained a sort of excommunicated Jew without converting to anything else. Um, we're going to be looking at a text called the uh, the Theological Political Tractate that he wrote, one of his earlier works, um, the Tractatus Political Theologicus in Latin. Um, and it's interesting for a variety of reasons. Uh, it uh, is one of the first early texts to be doing sort of critical analysis of uh, the Tanakh in ways that you know would later become associated with academic study of the Bible. Um, but he also is reading it politically. So for him, the Torah is a, uh, a political document as much as it is a religious one, if not more so. And it's about the laws for good society. And uh, people can, may already be hearing echoes of things we talked about last class. Um, but he also, much like we said last class, frames it very much in terms of questions of human nature. And if last week we talked about human nature, that maybe um, some polit political thinkers and maybe the Torah assume that people aren't always going to live up to their own ideals and their own commitments, uh, so I was going to take that one step farther. So I'm going to jump now to the introduction to the uh, political theolo or the theological political tractate. Oh, for that, yeah, Spinoza and the Radical Light. This is a, a, a the cover from a, a video on YouTube from a, a website called Then and Now. Uh, great short video introducing this sort of idea, but also uh, a phenomenal dissertation written recently. Um, just worth thinking about the fact that Spinoza is. Um, one way of reading Spinoza, a lot of what we're going to talk about, as opposed to Hobbes, who we looked at last time, who talked about the need for some sort of very powerful leader, some sort of very powerful sovereign uh, to uh, deal with the, the fact of uh, human frailty and the fact that people don't always live up to what they um, to what they'd like to. So you actually need to sort of put fear into people. Spinoza, as we're going to see, is actually much more positive. He starts off with a negative view of human nature but thinks that on some level through the creation of a society on the basis of fear to whatever degree, you can actually help people move past that. And so um, a lot of very interesting work has been done on some of his political thought in recent years, highlighting exactly the way in which he, he maybe moves towards something like anarchism, but at the very least, and we'll see it's explicitly tonight, is a supporter of democracy and thinks that democracy is something we can make happen. Right, so this is from the introduction to the Theological Political Tractate. Uh, as if men were always able to regulate their affairs with sure judgment, or if fortune always smiled upon them, they would not get caught up in any superstition, since people are often reduced to such desperate straits that they cannot arrive at any solid judgment. And as the good things of fortune for which they have a boundless desire are quite uncertain, they fluctuate wretchedly between hope and fear. And so that's the opening few lines of uh, the, the preface to his uh, theological political tractate. He opens it up with the problem of people being unable to regulate their, uh, you know, fortune, the things that happen to them, um, and therefore getting caught up in superstition. Right? He says that we are incapable of really understanding what everything's going to happen to us, and um, deter, like figuring out in advance is going to happen to us, and then making outcomes we like happen, and therefore we get caught up in superstition. And this lays out for this problem of. Um, people being caught up in fear, right? They fluctuate wretchedly between hope and fear, being torn between, I think things are going to work out well, and I think things aren't going to work out well. I think things are going to go good for me. I think things are going to go badly. 
um, is for him the basis, that's the basic nature of human society. We talked about last week, Hobbes says the state of nature outside society is um, a war of all against all, where everyone against everyone. For Spinoza, it's fear. It's that you are fundamentally concerned with your own existence on like a basic level of existence and also getting things you like or avoiding things you don't like. Um, and we're just not as good at, at making that happen. And this is a little harder for us to imagine today because uh, most of us live so deeply ingrained within society. There are so many layers between ourselves and like the natural order of events and being exposed to nature that it's hard to imagine the difficulties of, um, you know, getting through a day and not knowing where your food's going to come from um, or and not knowing who you might stumble across in the streets and if they might be friendly to you or not and all of the different things that are outside of our control because we live within a society that's managed to set things up in advance. So in such a deeply controlled way. And so part of what Spinoza wants to do, he himself lives uh, in a world very different from the one we inhabit, but also one far removed from this state of nature. Is that in both cases for himself and for us, we have to learn to try and think outside of our society. What would it be like to live without society? And he says part of the fundamental aspect of that, what that would mean is that there be, you know, fear. Fear is a fundamental state of human life. He says, we see at once that it is especially those who have a boundless desire for things that are uncertain, who are the most prone to superstition of every kind, and especially that all humans, when they find themselves in danger, are unable to support themselves, and they implore divine assistance with pleas and womanish tears. And Sorry about that one. <laughs> they swear that reason is blind and human wisdom fruitless because they cannot, it cannot show them a sure way of acquiring the empty things they want. Right? So he says that this is a problem that sort of just goes downhill. People who really want things they can't get um, just want, um, you know, feel like there's no possible way to, to get them. There's no, you can't improve your own situation in life. They fall into superstition. Right? He goes on to describe how this leads to um, you know, false religion, he calls it. So part of what he's going to do in the book, and we're not going to have time to really explore this at length, is he wants to make room not just for creating a good society, but creating also good religion, right? That there should be room for religion that allows people to believe what they think is correct and encourages people to uh, think clearly and critically about what they believe and arrive at true beliefs. And he thinks that in order to do that, much like creating good society, you have to uh, find some way of overcoming this fear. Now, on the other hand, they believe that delirious wanderings of the imagination, dreams, and all sorts of childish nonsense are divine replies. There's all these things that have no basis in reason they think are really from God. That God is adverse to the wise, and that rather than inscribe his laws in the mind, he writes them in the intestines of animals, and that fools, madmen, and birds reveal them by divine inspiration and impulse. It is dread that makes men so irrational. Right? So, uh, much like Hobbes saying the basic problem of humanism is fear, but it's not as with Hobbes, fear of other people. It's just that we are so incapable of understanding things that it's um, that we feel fear all the time. And so that basic point is going to be important both for him and for us, that there's a tension between understanding things and being afraid of them, right? That um, so you often, you know, hear like uh, the, you know, people are afraid of the unknown that what makes something scary is really not knowing that it's dangerous. It's with all the things you don't know about it. Uh, and for that's very much true for Spinoza. So um, the question that society is a response to 
and that is something that like good religion is a response to is like what you know how do we deal with the things we don't know how do we create a life capable of grappling with say and you know safely navigating the unknown and moving from a position of fear of the unknown where we're just responding to things and out of fear and not wisely or smartly to making calculated decisions based on our values and based on like shaping our life the way we'd like to lead it uh, hence fear is the root from which superstition is born maintained and nourished people are swayed by credulity only so long as they are afraid uh, that all the things they have ever worshipped under the influence of false religion are nothing but the fancies and fantasies of a despondent and fearful minds, right? So he wants us to be able to sort of move away from all of these, uh, you know, fantasies and false religion. And you can hear in this not just the influence of someone deeply ingrained in sort of Tanakh and Tanakh's critique of idolatry, but also very specifically Rambam and Rambam's interest in uh, a life guided by wisdom and reason and philosophy and that moves away from superstition and false religion. Um, this book is deeply engaged with Rambam. Um, but I want to quickly look at the way he used Spinoza based on that model of human nature, you know, depicts certain models of, of government and the way they function. Because it may indeed be, this is still in the uh, the introduction to the book, it may indeed be the highest secret of monarchical government, utterly essential to it, to keep men deceived and to disguise the fear that sways them with the specious name of religion, so they will fight for their servitude as if they were fighting for their own deliverance, and will not think it humiliating, but supremely glorious, to spill their blood and sacrifice their lives for the glorification of a single man. And so he, we discussed a little bit last time, the way Thomas Hobbes thinks the fear of the government replaces fear of everyone you ever meet. You go from being afraid of anyone who could come across you to being afraid of just the one ruler, and that actually can be good. But since Spinoza is pointing out, it's very, very hard to tell the difference between what's a good person to be afraid of in terms of the government versus a bad person to be afraid of. <laughs> um, and it doesn't actually solve any other problem. It solves the most immediate problem, but it fails to actually lead towards something we might call freedom. But in a free republic, on the other hand, nothing that can be devised or attempted will be less successful. Well, for it is completely contrary to the common liberty to shackle the free judgments of the individual with prejudices or constraints of any kind. Right? So if we want to have something we call freedom, if we value that, he doesn't say you can't have the powerful threat of government. He's still going to say that might actually be the necessary basis for government. But you have to find a way to do that that enables you to move through fear towards something else that allows you to make space for the free judgment of the individual without you know the thing that enables people to make decisions based on their values i conclude that everyone should be allowed the liberty of their own judgment and authority to interpret the fundamentals of faith according to their own minds and that the piety or impiety of each person's faith should be judged by their works alone. In this way, everyone will be able to obey God in a spirit of sincerity and freedom, and only justice and charity will be esteemed by everyone. So this is the society he would like to create, a society that makes room for everyone to, um, you know, said to uh, judgment and authority to interpret funnels of faith, fundamentals of faith according to their own minds, but also the where uh, everyone will be able to obey God in a spirit of sincerity and freedom, and only justice and charity will be esteemed by everyone. That by creating a society, the same way Thomas Hobbes said, and we're going to see this in a second inside Spinoza, through sort of the use of fear, you can actually do is not sort of save people from a lot of small fears through the introduction of one large fear, but people can come together 
to shape their lives based on reason. So this is jumping into the middle of the book. He says, if we also reflect that without mutual help and the cultivation of reason, human beings necessarily live in great misery, we shall realize very clearly that it was necessary for people to combine together in order to live in security and prosperity. They should, however, have had no hope of achieving this had they concerned themselves only to the promptings of desire, for by the laws of appetite, everyone is drawn in different directions. Thus, they had to make a firm decision and reach agreement to decide everything but the sole dictate of reason. Right? So as opposed to Hobbes, who imagined someone sort of coming from the outside and forcing everyone to agree to, to, be, uh, to, to listen to them, or making someone who's sort of outside them their leader, Spinoza is going to how do we decide all together to run things according to reason? This principle should play the most important role in the formation of a state. It is far from being the case that everyone can easily be led by the sole guidance of reason, right? So in trying to create a society together, we have to <clears throat> oh, like, uh, allow for human nature and try and work with that. For everyone is guided by their own pleasure and the mind is very often so preoccupied with greed, glory, jealousy, anger, et cetera, there is no room for reason. Accordingly, even if people promise and agree to keep faith by offering sure signs of sincerity, no one can be certain of another person's good faith unless something is added to the promise. The sovereign, this person is gonna be added, unless the sovereign right over all men belongs to him who has the sovereign power, wherewith he can compel men by force or restrain them by threats of the universally feared punishment of death, right? So that's how we're going to create a society based on reason. And you can sort of feel the irony here of using fear to create a society based on reason, uh, which we already said before that, you know, fear and, and understanding are sort of opposites for Spinoza and in, in the way we think of them today. Uh, but the point he's trying to get at is that fear can be a basis that enables you to make good decisions otherwise. That if we think fear is what keeps us from using our reason, then sort of much like Thomas Hobbes proposed, using fear to combat fear, uh, Spinoza is saying the same thing. But whereas Hobbes said, you could sort of leave it there, that fear, a greater fear can shut down a minor fear and you live in that sort of greater fear. Uh, for Spinoza, this enables you to move past fear. Fear can shut down fear and then you can make decisions based on principle, based on reason, based on how you think you should shape society and shape your lives, right? So this leads him directly to discussion of democracy. There's a body politic of this kind is called a democracy, which may be defined as society, which wields all its powers as a whole. The sovereign power is not restrained by any laws, but the, everyone is bound to obey it in all things. Such is the state of things implied when men either tacitly or expressly handed over to it all their power of self-defense, or in other words, all their right, right? So you see here, the he's trying to think of this model of a sovereign, someone who's totally empowered over all of society as something that the people create themselves, that we may voluntarily choose to give power to this head of society. Therefore, Having acted, as we've shown, as a reason and necessity demanded, they are obliged to fulfill the commands of the sovereign power, right? So having acted in such a way as to create a society based on reason and necessity, they now are, have to obey the government, however absurd these commands may be, else they will be public enemies and will act against reason, which urges the preservation of the state as a primary duty, for reason bids us to choose the least of two evils, right? So 
uh, you end up saying that we have this sort of baseline level of fear where you have to be made for your own sake, be loyal to society and you know not sort of undercut society. But um, like on top of that, you have the ability to make like your the society has a purpose. Society is not just about um, you know physical constraints. It's also about creating this society where you can to whatever degree shape your life based on reason. Um, in addition, there's this democratic state's foundation and purpose, which is precisely as we have shown to avoid the follies of appetite as much as possible to bring men within the limits of reason so they may dwell in peace and harmony. Anyone who is guided by their own pleasure and cannot see or do what is good for them is him or herself very much a slave. Right, so the, for Spinoza, I think it's a very important point. We are all sort of born into or uh, on a natural sense slaves to re to our appetites, he says, right? And um, to touch briefly on the theological elements of this, it's worth noting that Spinoza uh, famously does not believe in free will, uh, at least not free will in the sense that we think of it, because he says that you're just, you're just moved by your appetites. You're sort of pushed and pulled by hope and fear, as we saw in the beginning of this. And so the question is, how do you move outside of those? How do you move into some other uh, you know, way of living, living that's not just based on the push and pull of hope and fear. And the answer is through reason. And in this case, also through um, trying to gain, uh, use some sort of force that can uh, restrain your hope and, and fear, restrain the follies of appetite. Right? This is the only way you can move from being a slave to your sort of natural impulses to being free is to have something like religion or, you know, government. <laughs> Um, to enable you to make decisions based on reason alone, or primarily based on reason. Um, this is a point to know where I if I think Maxine put the um, the source sheet in the uh, in the chat. The sources have even more uh, text from Spinoza than I've we've gone through. Uh, I'd love to thank you all for sticking with me so far on this count. Uh, I know it was a bunch, um, and I cut some out. So there's stuff anyone wants to see a little more in this respect. Uh, including an interesting taxonomy of for Spinoza differences between uh, a slave, a uh, free person, and a, a subject, and a, a child, if I'm recalling correctly, and uh, the way they make decisions. Um, that's all in the source sheet that uh, will be shared in the chat at some point. Um, okay, so uh, I'm going to just briefly, briefly read this line from Jacques Lacan because I think it's a good summary of who's a, a psychoanalyst in the 20th century, as you can see here. Um, is a good summary of uh, some of what we talked about so far for our purposes, uh, which is this, this famous fear of God completes the sleight of hand that transforms from one minute to the next all fears into perfect courage. So the fear of God is a sort of paradoxical thing that is not fear, but is in fact courage. All fears, I have no other fear, are exchanged for what is called the fear of God, which, however constraining it may be, is the opposite of fear. Um, so the same way that the fear of, uh, you know, society for fear of the government for Spinoza enables you to move beyond fear. Um, Jacques Lacan is putting this here in terms of fear of God in a in a less political sense, um, but it obviously has very strong political ramifications. He's just not giving it the same sort of the here's how we create a society model. He's talking about, uh, and this is going to be helpful also for bridging back towards the discussion of religion we're going to do after this, that fear of God in a, a simple sense of, you know, I am a religious person. I believe that God exists. I believe that things in, that happen in my life somehow reflect the divine will. 
um, I believe there may be consequences for my actions, um, that can be a fear that if I'm af afraid of God, I don't then feel fear towards anything else. That the greatness of God and the you know God's uh, sovereignty, as we talked about last week, become a reason to feel less fear and less uh, angst, anxiety about everything else. Right? The same way Spinoza wanted us to move away from being a slave to all our fears and anxieties, um, Lacan is saying, yeah, fear of God does that too. So um, that will lead us to the first of our uh, two sections of, of Jewish sources that I'm excited to look at with you. Um, but I want to quickly stop sharing my screen and ask if there's any questions um, before I, I move out of this lengthy uh, political introduction. Um, we have some hands up. Uh, Maxine, you want to feel that? Uh, um, yeah, I, saw, yeah. I saw Benjamin first, so. Okay. Uh, I, just maybe a little clarity. How does Spinoza um, feel that democracy will solve this problem of people being irrational? It seems like it would make more sense for it to be more elitist because maybe you can have an elite that would be rational and that would be less superstitious. Ah, so a clear process of that that you, that you skipped, maybe? Um, it's not going to be possible to work this out all the way because the the um, on some level the problem of human fear sort of always is going to exist and like people are always going to be uh, some degree of rational irrational, but democracy is uh, has as its goal um, raising everyone as much as possible out of the state of being driven based on fear to agreeing to come together to uh, make decisions based on rationality and reason and uh, what makes sense. Um, and the contrast with the dictator model, a dictator could make you know, a society based on laws for everyone. Uh, and in some sense, that's what um, superstition does. Um, as we talked a little bit in the introduction of the book, superstition moves people not based on just their own sort of appetites, whatever, but because it's in both cases, it's still very much connected to fear and fails to sort of lead most of the people out of that basic state of fear. Um, so democracy has its goal, sort of the elevation of most of the, as many of the people as much as possible in a way that sort of more elitist model wouldn't. Cool. I was, can I try to on my own words, see if I understood it properly? Um, sure. Okay. It's just that much democracy has an interest of raising the level because I have a shared interest because the person next to me also feels more rational will help the whole society, but a dictator doesn't have that interest. He would rather create a, a greater di distance between his rationality and other people. That's the yeah. idea? Yeah. Thank you. And yeah, Al? I, I think there was something left out in this jump from fear to transforming our fear to a higher power. Because when we only translate ira as fear, we leave out the awe part and the the ascribing our benevolent our Hashem with the benevolent um, benevolence of that ira part of the awe. So I think that we get away from fear necessarily when we're talking about a religious, not only in Judaism, but I would say also in the time that he's writing with, with Christianity and Islam, that our benevolent, um, Hashem, the benevolent divine 
is we have no need to fear anything because the benevolent divine is um, watching out for us and will take care of us even through death. I hear that. Um, I think that the only thing I'll say that is I think benevolence assumes, um, or at least the benevolence as you're describing, it seems to assume there might never be consequences that we would experience as negative, right? So you can imagine um, a benevolence that includes like bad things happening when people disobey or whatever, to use sort of that uh, model. I mean, um, you said a couple of things, Yura, you're right. There are many other sort of loftier versions of Yura. Yura can mean awe for sure. Um, one of the, the things that I think is interesting is that like we started last week, we looked a little bit at the text of the Sidur uh, for the, uh, the you know, Yom Narim for Yom Kippur Hashanah. And it uses Yura, but also uses Pachad and also Ema. And these are all words that may have more uh, concrete senses of fear involved. And those are all parts of the Jewish tradition as well. So I, I think I really don't want to deny the versions of other divisions of other models of Yura, but I think it's worth thinking through what um, Yura in a more concrete sense might do and might mean. Um, and I think that you like the the infinitely benevolent God model does exist in uh, in Judaism, and I assume also in Christianity, Islam. I'm not you know, say an expert and then I don't want to make too robust statements about that. But uh, I think also models that uh, Judaism also has models that believe more in uh, almost simplistic, I would say, like models of, of like calculus of consequence and reward and punishment and action and things. And I think often in, you know, 20th, 21st century, we're very quick to dismiss those, that they seem strange to us. And I think there's actually a lot of wisdom there in some ways. Um, if there's no one else, then we'll hop back and look into, into the uh, PowerPoint and actually look at some Jewish texts uh, now. now that, yeah, thank you all for sitting with me through the, uh, the political philosophy stuff. Now we'll get to what we're here for. Okay, so uh, there are going to be two sections now. One I've called Yerushalayim is counterculture. Uh, the other one will deal more explicitly with politics, but both of them have to do with the way that if we take Yura as... Uh, or you know, this is a way of thinking about fear as um, helping us move past fear and move towards other forms of decision making. Uh, then part of the question comes: How does that relate to other forms of society and other uh, you know forms of fear? If uh, just to go back to the simplistic sort of dictator model from Hobbes we mentioned last time, the big fear as opposed to the little fears that Hobbes said you're afraid of government and therefore you don't have to be afraid of other people. Uh, if you say that the, the source of consequences, let's say that you're afraid of is, or you're concerned with uh, is God, then you're no longer concerned with consequences that would come from other places, right? And so how does that put you into relationship with um, society? And we're gonna look at two different texts uh, for about Yura for, um, yeah, and sort of the mitzvot and in terms of society and culture when doing mitzvot in a different society and culture. Um, and then look at a few texts going back to all the way to Sefer Breshit, Sefer Shemot, uh, about um, the way that might work, not just in terms of society, but also in terms of uh, concrete political structures. Um, 
So this is from Rabbeinu Bacha Ibn Pakuda, uh, who's the author of the Chavot Levavot, um, the duties of the heart is how it's typically translated. Um, it has some Arabic name I can never remember. Uh, he wrote it in Judeo-Arabic. He um, died in the year 1050 or so. Um, I hope I'm getting that quite right. Details like that aren't quite my specialty, but he it's a wonderful book. It is a combined sort of philosophical and uh, pietistic work on uh, thinking about God and human life in relationship to God. Uh, it's sort of twin goals are to move towards understanding a, a, a perfect like understanding the perfect unity of God in a philosophical sense, and then attaining a perfect unity of your own heart directed in service of God. Um, so in, in the 10th gate of the book, the 10th section, uh, he has a discussion of Yirah that's um, pertinent to our discussion. He says, the second type of fear is awe inspired by his glory. And I should say, as I mentioned, he wrote his book in Judeo-Arabic. Uh, I, alas, do not read Arabic. Um, and the the uh, translations into English of his work from Arabic into English are actually kind of hard to come by. Um, there's a couple out there, um, but this is the text I took from Safaria, um, from, which is a translation that was done for free, made available for free. It's it's just a mitzvah that was done by the rabbi who translated it. His name I can't remember, um, but it is translated from the Hebrew. So that's worth noting. Um, one of the interesting things that also happens is that, so I have here the text in the second paragraph, one of the pious would tell over. Um, the pious is a phrase in uh, Rubenu Bachia that could mean a, a pious Jew, but could also mean a pious uh, Muslim, that he was deeply engaged with Sufi Islam of his time. Um, there's an interesting story uh, that about the, say, uh, it's called a... Um, you know, it's a different time, but is he uh, a lot of Sufi stories make it into texts like texts from Chassidut from the Baal Shem Tov and his students by way of Rabbeinu Bachia. So he finds an interesting connections that happen that way. Uh, but OK, second type of fear is awe inspired by his glory, exaltedness and almighty power. It's awe never parts from a man all the days of his life. It is the highest of the levels of the God fearing. It is the introductory path to pure love. Whoever reaches this level of fear of God will not be frightened by anything nor fear anything besides the creator. And in the sense of if you're truly focused on sort of God in terms of fear, then you won't fear anything else. One of the pious would tell over on a God-fearing man which he found sleeping in the wilderness. He asked the man, are you not afraid of lions that you sleep in a place like this? And the man answered, I would be ashamed before God if he saw me afraid of other than him. Right? If, I, if God saw that I was afraid of saying other than God, then I would feel shame about that. Um, he doesn't really flesh out why that is. Um, my simple assumption, it is sort of like we've been thinking about here, the question of what are you really concerned about in terms of consequences and where do you think that consequences come from? Um, in the source sheet, there's a text from Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, a Kabbalist from Tzvat in his book, Tomer Devora. Uh, I left it out of the PowerPoint because we're not going to time to go over it, but there he makes... Uh, a similar argument, much more explicitly in terms of God being the source of lions and, uh, you know, the one in charge and things like that. If you just take the thing, the consequences that happen to you as being ultimately traceable to God anyways, then um, there's no reason to be afraid of them. But Rabbeinu Bacha puts it in a more explicitly social context uh, in the next two paragraphs. He says, another sign is that in fulfilling God's will it is equal in his eyes if people praise him or scorn him. When to please the creator, he bids them on doing good or refraining from evil, right? Is that you no longer 
care what other people think. It's the sort of fundamental disconnect that begins when you say that what really matters is what God thinks about certain actions, right? That um, then it doesn't actually matter whether people uh, praise him or scorn. If you feel praise or scorn, um, another sign he says that he's willing to give up his life, body, money, and children to do the will of the Creator. As written, uh, for your sake, we are slain all the day long. Alecha horagnu kol hayom. I don't want to get bogged down in the details of that, but the, the uh, but the so you can hear you know um, echoes of Shema, uh, um, that the sense of willingness to sacrifice everything because what sort of matters is not society. It's not how are people going to respond to me until the degree of like if people are trying to hurt you. You, st you still wouldn't care about it, right? The ultimate sort of, if, if society's ability, government's ability to, um, you know, punish, enforce laws to the point of capital punishment was something that uh, we spoke about last week, a little bit foundational aspect of society, um, that he's here saying, actually, fear of God should enable you to challenge that on some level. Fear of God should make you want to keep the mitzvot even to the point where you can disregard that aspect of government. That got, in some sense, fear of God sort of disconnects you from the, the basic fear of government. Um, and the second, the last text for this section I want to talk about is from the Shulchan Aruch, uh, from the very, very beginning of the Shulchan Aruch, um, the you know, Book of Jewish Law, um, which it has on many, many, and almost all of its paragraphs, it has a commentary from Rabbi Moshe Isherlish, the Ramah, lived in uh, Warsaw and Poland in, um, I wanted to say uh, 17th century, but I could be wrong on that. Um, whatever. Um, yeah, so this is his, his first comment he makes on what's become known as the Book of Jewish Law, sort of a basic introduction to, um, you know, keeping uh, halacha. Um, he says, I have set the Lord before me constantly. Shaviti Hashem lenegdi tamid. This is a major principle in the Torah among the virtues of the righteous who walk before God. For a person's way of sitting, his movements, and his dealings with, while he's alone in his house are not like his way of sitting, his movements, and his dealings when he's before a great king, nor are his speech and free expression as much as he wants when he is with his household members. And his relatives like his speech when in a royal, uh, when in a royal audience. And I see the first thing he says is that consciousness of God, and this is, um, you know, the, the Rebbeinu Bachia mentioned this briefly, and we looked at this briefly in the Rambam or Nebuchim last week, and it's on, on the source sheet from last week, where anyone wants to go look at that. Uh, the Rabbi Moshe Ishulish actually uh, cites the Mor Nebuchim in the piece I left out of this, um, is that you, what it means first and foremost to have fear of God is to have this sort of constant awe of God. Right? It's, it's at all times you feel as if you're in the presence of uh, God, the same way you might say you're sort of in God when you're worried about like conscious of the law that's something that applies at all times um but then Dermot towards the end of his comment um and I had mentioned again this is it was a very long comment so I left some of it out of this, the source sheet but it is all on the um on the I left some of it out of the PowerPoint it's all on the source sheet I think I put the Hebrew on the source sheet as well um he, he concludes and all the more so when one takes to heart that the great king the holy one blessed be he whose whole gl whose glory fills the earth is standing over him and watching his actions. He immediately acquires fear and submission and dread to God. May he be blessed as a shame before him constantly. That is the citation of the Moran of Uchim. Uh, and one should not be ashamed because of people who mock him in his service of God and should also go modestly. Right? So the 
um, the Shulchan Aruch, or the, the Ramah has a sense that when you're sort of beginning the discussion of keeping halacha, when you're about to set out a whole multi-volume work of like, what are the laws uh, I think a Jew should live by, an important part of that is saying, you're going to live in and around people who think you're acting ridiculously, right? It's not, it's just, it has a little bit less of the drama of the, uh, the, um, the, it's called the Bachia saying, you know, you should be willing to sacrifice your life for this. Ramaz not saying that, he's not saying you shouldn't, but he's, he's, he's talking about mockery, not about murder, right? Uh, and in some sense, it's much more relatable, is that um, there's many, many parts of Judaism that make perfect sense to everyone around us, and there's many, many parts of Judaism that seem very strange. <laughs> um, we have uh, the, the holiday of Sukkot coming up, when many Jews will be walking around daily holding uh, various plants in their hands. Um, and it's one of those things that if a uh, you know met someone from a, a never heard of Jews before, it'd be very hard to explain. You explain uh, laws around charity and visiting the sick. That's easy. That everyone gets that. That makes sense. You know, explain the plants a little harder. Um, and I was saying that having a basic sense of uh, yira, of, of pachad, of fear of God, disconnects you from that concern for what other people think about you, what other people might be saying about you, and instead focuses you on uh, your relationship with God and putting your actions specifically in context of God and enabling you to perform that, with it. not saying like people won't be mocking you, <laughs> but uh, enabling you to do what you think you need to do to make choices based on what you think are the sort of basic principles that should be guiding your life, in this case, uh, you know, based on God, uh, rather than based on fear of mockery. Um, okay, I want to stop the share again. I see there's some some things in the chat. Um, we'll talk about that. Maybe there's also questions from Facebook. Um, let's see what's happening in the chat. Yes, this is just comments about things that look strange. Um, yes, <laughs> okay. Um, but does anyone have any, any questions for the final section? Okay, I'm glad to hear I've made myself entirely clear, uh, hopefully. Um, let's, I'm gonna share my screen. Yes. This is just speculation, but um, this Rama, I guess, is commenting on a, on the you know Shulchan Aruch which says that like you should rise every day like a lion I don't know I'm just yeah there's like a kind of interesting little tie in there probably just coincidence and but yeah well there's um question of how much you want to make of the details of it both of them clearly feel a need to to begin their their text on the uh, you know halacha on the law with uh some form of inspirational passage um depicting yourself as resistant to mockery versus depicting yourself as a lion uh is very different and they, they, you could well, flesh those out in different mm -hmm. ways no i was i mean i was thinking about the um uh like how mm. that has you know it's um the uh the person sleeping outside oh right the lion you know aren't you afraid of the lions oh, that's an interesting point yeah i don't know i have to think about it uh, I don't know enough about, uh, like, I, uh, the Chova Livavot became a very important book relatively quickly, so it would surprise me if, like, the Shulchan wasn't aware of it, but I, I don't know enough to know, like, how influential it might have been. Okay, um, now we'll look at some, some less medieval and more biblical texts for 
uh, this last section. Um, the first thing I want to note is from uh, the Jews' own, you know, instruction to create some sort of political structure. This is from uh, the first chapter of Devarim, which rehearses uh, the discussion of creation of judges from Shemot, the 18th chapter of Exodus of Shemot, uh, when Moshe is told to make, uh, to appoint judges and given various qualities for them. And here in Devarim, in this sort of rehearsal, or, you know, uh, Moshe repeating that story, he adds a line about um, how, like the relationship between judgment and um, God and other people. So the Hebrew here, I'm just going to read through the English. Um, Moshe is speaking, so I took your tribal leaders, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, chiefs of thousands, chiefs of hundreds, chiefs of fifties, and chiefs of tens, and officials for your tribes. I charged your, excuse me, I charged your magistrates at that time as follows, hear out your fellow men and decide justly between any man and a fellow Israelite or a stranger. You shall not be partial in judgment. Hear out and uh, low and high alike. Fear no man, for judgment is God's. And in matters too difficult for you, you shall bring to me, I will hear it, as I instructed you at that time, but the various things that you should do, right? So this is a highlighted line. Lo takiru panim b'mishpat, kakaton, kakotagadol, tishmun, lo taguru mitneish ki hamishpat lelohim. Do not fear any person, for the just judgment belongs to God's. And here he's not, to be fair, talking about the like, era of God, not talking about fearing God, but it's a clear sense of the, the tension between fear of other people and focusing on, um, you know, what God and what God, what God wants, and this question of principle um, that would be, you know, helped by the various contexts of fear of God. And notably, um, we looked last week at the mitzvot from the Torah to fear God, both of which appear in Sefer Devarim. Um, so Devarim since begins with this discussion of creating a law where the law is aligned with God and is aware that you might need to, to not be afraid of other people for that to happen. And then goes on to talk about fear of God and other, you know, later on in the book in the 17th chapter of Devarim talks about creating the, the political system. Um, but I just want to start with that. I think it lays out that relationship very clearly. I now want to look quickly at two stories uh, from Breshit um, and Shemot, respectively, that highlight in, in the process of the narrative this problem, um, or the way this idea that maybe um, fear of God would like cause you or necessarily put you in con in tension with the human leader, with the human king. In the 20th chapter of Sefer Breshit, um, it's the second time Abraham's wife, uh, Sarah, is kidnapped, and he has to sort of deal with that. Um, now, going into every aspect of this story, I want to focus on uh, one element, is an Avimelech uh, kidnaps him, uh, kidnaps Sarah, um, and eventually, uh, you know, God appears to Avimelech in a dream and says, why'd you do that? And, you know, Avimelech returns her and then confronts Avraham. Um, and that's sort of where we're going to jump in a little bit um, here. So early next morning, Avimelech called his servants and told them all what had happened. Um, and the men were greatly frightened. And uh, so just to realize I didn't spell it out well enough, uh, Avraham told that Avimelech and his you know countrymen that Sarah was not in fact his wife that she was his sister and seemingly based on that they kidnapped Sarah um, and yeah so that's what they're coming back to to uh, having discovered the truth they're challenging Avraham like why did you do that so what have you done to us what's wrong that I have done you should be uh, you should what wrong have I done that you should bring so great a guilt upon me in my kingdom you have done things to me that ought not to be done right so you shouldn't have lied to me what then Avimelech said Avraham was your purpose in doing this 
and here's the important line for our purposes. I thought, said Abraham, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Right, so uh, Abraham, you know, he goes on to justify more the, the why he's describing his wife as a sister, uh, but the far purpose is the reason he felt the need to uh, to lie is because there was no fear of God and how they would kill him because of his wife. And on some level, fear of God here is just in place of killing. It doesn't have to have to do with the fact that the king is the one here who was making a demand. The king is the one who demanded to take Abraham's wife. Um, the fear of God doesn't have to be mentioned with the king, but I think we'll, the next story will make clear that it was. For now, to say it's very clear, fear of God is opposed to, is uh, on the side of ethics, right? The fear of God, without fear of God, people will kill someone who will make decisions based on their baser appetites, uh, potentially um, based on fear of the king, that like you say, um, the king wants, you know, Abraham's wife, so we're going to kill him and give the king his wife. Um, but certainly, at the very least, without fear of God, Abraham thinks you can't ask people not, like you can't expect people to, to do the right thing. People will kill me without fear of God. Um, but I, I want to propose, and again, we'll see this even more clearly in the next story, that the Abraham is concerned no one's going to say no to the king. They're, the king is going to express a desire for uh, my wife, and they're going to kill me because the king said so. Uh, and it's the king, no one's going to stand up to the king in a place where there is no fear of God. And part of the reason I'm inclined to read that reading is because of the next story, which is uh, a very famous story. And honestly, I, like I, this is the first, thinking in terms of fear of God as a political force is the first time I sort of feel like I've, this part of the story makes sense on a basic linguistic level. Um, and this is the story of the midwives in the first chapter of Shemot, uh, the first chapter of the book of Exodus, um, where uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh has you know, told the midwives to kill all the uh, Hebrew boys that are born, all the boys who are born to the Ivrim in Israel um, should you know, kill all of them. Uh, and then the midwives don't, uh, they choose not to. And they, the king of Egypt confronts them. And he says, again, just reading the English, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, saying, when you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If it's a boy, kill him. They give him the command. If it is a girl, let her, let her live, right? Um, so this is before the, uh, he confronts them. Um, the midwives, fearing God, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live, right? And uh, the uh, midwives feared God, so they did not do what the king of Egypt said to them. Right? And it's very clear that fear of God uh, doesn't mean something sort of simple ethical behavior, which is how sort of often read based on like the last chapter we just looked at. Like, no, there's a, they, their fear is, a, is toward God. They're concerned with what God thinks about their actions. And that could be in a, a somewhat sort of loftier sense, but it could also be the very simple fact of like, they think God will punish them if they do the right thing or they do the wrong thing and God will reward them if they do the right thing. And the, the next few verses depict how they actually, you know, <laughs> did what they thought God wanted and that God did reward them. Um, but it is, you know, choosing to make a decision to act based on fear of God rather than based on fear of the king. Uh, that leads them to do the right thing. It leads them to uh, set off the story of redemption that is the rest of the book of, of Exodus. It leads them towards, you know, the the whole story we've spoken about earlier in this class and in last class about creating a society 
uh, of, you know, based on God and the Jewish people and things like that. Like it all starts here with their fear of God pushing them away from fearing power and their fear of God pushing them away from killing children. Um, so what this all sort of says to me is, a, is uh, you know, to sum this up is um, that the question of, you know, how do we make decisions uh, and what do we think about consequences are very critical, not just for um, the sort of specific concrete things we do, but also broader questions of like, what are we oriented towards and who, where, what consequences themselves are we concerned about, right? So to refer back to uh, the mockery mentioned in the Ramah or the like actual risk to life and property uh, and family mentioned in uh, Rabbeinu Bachia, like whose consequences are ones that we use to shape our actions and which are not, right? And so this can have all kinds of consequences in terms of our relationship with society around us. Uh, if we live, uh, are willing to do things that make us look strange because we think they're right, um, but can also in the context of say, uh, Shemot uh, in the story look like something like um, conscientious objection or civil disobedience, um, things like that. It can also just in terms of the political level of moving beyond fear, it can mean voting based on principle rather than voting based on fear and choosing uh, what you think is right rather than choosing what you think is safe and things like that. Like there's This pushes you in all kinds of directions to think about the relationship between yourself, God, society, uh, and politics in terms of these are all overlapping realms, right? God and politics are not separate because they're both asked questions of what are the consequences in our life that really matter? Which one corresponds to sort of who we are on the most fundamental level and which ones do we want to let shape us, right? Do we want sort of consequences of uh, what we think God wants to to shape us. We think that want that to be the primary base in which we make decisions, or are we more immediately concerned with our like getting food on the table or um, our personal safety? And what degree does living in society uh, or living in you know with the sense of uh, what God wants from us, regardless of society, enable us to move past uh, voting or acting based on sort of what our own personal interests and moves instead towards um, thinking about issues of principle. Um, yeah. <laughs> Any uh, thoughts, questions? I would love to hear what anyone is thinking, wants to say, something like that. Yeah, I guess I'll uh, read what uh, Noah said for the recording. Um, so this all reminds me of Tishrei, especially when the layout is how it was last year. Felt like there was only one workday in the month. Um, it was the first time I had no sense of guilt about taking off um, for every sabbatical day. It wasn't something I was going to compromise on, so the shock, disgust, negativity from other folks just didn't matter to me. Yeah, I very much uh, agree. I think it's it's. I have a, uh, a slightly different situation. I live in Israel, so a lot of the holidays end up being national holidays. But then you do find other days, like like Purim is not a national holiday, um, or um, even like Erev Chag is not usually a national holiday. And things like we decide, like okay, so I'm going to use that for taking a, uh, a vacation day, and I have to uh, pick, decide that it's okay that like I'm going to be out of sorts with society on those days. Um, and um, there's a whole other sheer than what it means to have like a different calendar than the society you live in and the way that fundamentally puts you out of joint with them. Um, but I think it's a very good example 
of when you have to make this sort of decision. Yeah, Benjamin. Yeah, I kind of have a comment, I think, more, which is something that I realized is that because of the ambiguousness of God's commandments in many contexts, there's kind of like this danger also where the, the feeling that God has your back, where you hit the fear of God as a motivation, can also cause people to actually just amplify their own um, interpretations of whatever it is that God commands. And so there's kind of this double-edged sword where when you are right, and you are on track with God, you have this really strong power, but it doesn't always, it doesn't work in a very clear way. That's definitely true. Um, and I think um, in some sense, it's the problem with principle, <laughs> or as I called it in the, the uh, title of this year, radicality, the um, question of willingness to um, disconnect from normal frameworks and not worry about what society will say is that, it, yeah, it can be dangerous for that reason. Um, it's hard to to give a a like catch all answer to that problem because on some level that's the basic problem of saying willingness to say that like um, the status quo is not necessarily optimal uh, is that that can be you can say that in good ways or in bad ways and there's no way to to from the get go rule out the bad ways you have to just uh, keep ethics in mind as a, a fundamental principle uh, the one thing I'll just share that it, in terms of that is a, a a vort from Rosh Shiva that I always liked about. He says, the, the Mishnah says, a a debate for the sake of heaven will exist forever. And the the sense from the Mishnah is that it's because like there's something valuable in both sides if they're both sides are dedicated to the name of heaven. But uh, Rosh Shiva say, yeah, because people think that they're fighting for God, then they're never going to give it up even when they should. Um, so on some level, that cuts against what, a lot of what I've been saying tonight. But the basic point, um, I think is it still a valid one of the, the importance of making decisions based on principle and the way you, you know fear of God helps us do that. Um, but you're right; you have to also keep in mind uh, the limits of that and the ways in which that could potentially be dangerous, and that should keep you sensitive and uh, clear-eyed to maybe be self-critical enough to also be, uh, you know, careful about that. Do it feels like, like do do we know if if Marx was familiar with Spinoza? And would you say that Marx's attitude toward religion was the same as Spinoza or the opposite? Mm. Um, it's a good question. A little beyond both the context of this year and my expertise, I'll say quickly that um, both of them were very concerned about like lower forms of religion and the what that to people. Both of them also saw the potential value in it. And Marx is famously quoted often about saying religion is the opium of the masses, but opium was also like a painkiller and a medicine in his day. Like it's not as uh, unambiguously negative a statement, um, but more than that, I wouldn't want to get into. Um, so like I, he probably knew Spinoza on some degree. Spinoza became very important after, uh, in, again, in his own lifetime and immediately there afterwards, um, but I don't know the details beyond that. <laughs> Any any uh, more comments? Anything from Facebook, or are, uh, we are good to sign up for for the holiday season? Hi, uh, I think uh, that's it for this afternoon. Um, almost. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thank you, Darisha, yeah. for uh, you know one giving me the opportunity to teach. Thank you all for exploring with me. This is a bit of an experimental set of classes, um, and also just the rest of your schedule, Darisha, looks incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, thank you, and. Uh, 
thanks to everyone who joined us uh, and is part of our learning community um, at uh, 4 p.m. today, um, just half an hour. Uh, the next season of the Music and Liter uh, Liturgy Project will debut on Facebook and YouTube. Um, soon after that, it'll be available on other platforms. Um, and in this last week before Rosh Hashanah, we still have another seven classes. Um, so you can learn more and register for those classes at lol.drisha.org. And that's all. Have a good afternoon and a uh, good night.